Welcome to Before You Go. I'm Bryant Monte. And I'm Nicole Franklin. Well, we have a special guest on our show. All of our guests are special, of course. Yes, uh, of Juma course. Muhammad is joining us. Now, he recently returned from Gambia, Africa. Woo. <laughs> nice. Well, welcome, Ajuma. Welcome. Well, I am honored to be here, and I pray to Almighty God that he bless my tongue, hopefully to say something that will inspire and motivate <laughs> others throughout the world. So yeah. I am honored to be here. Yeah, you got to tell us about your trip, because this is just recently you returned, right? Absolutely. So uh, God has blessed me to visit over 60 different countries throughout the world. Nice. I recently returned from Gambia probably about two weeks ago. Okay. Um, Gambia is a very undeveloped country because it was decimated by the British, the Portuguese, and other Europeans who came in oh, and goodness. colonized the country. Uh, so the country is in its developmental phases and stages of growth. Uh, the people are very warm, very beautiful uh, uh, country in spite of some of the areas that need uh, great repair. Uh, I was welcomed with open arms. And uh, it's nothing like waking up in the motherland, just the serenity. Yeah. Uh, waking yeah. up in the motherland is very, very tranquil and very, very beautiful. Mm -hmm. So what was like your mission? What was your focus? Yes. Well, the mission is always to build relationships to understand the different dynamics of the various cultures of the different countries that I might be visiting. Uh, I like to understand the, the politics, the mental health, uh, the, the social connections and development of the people, how they interact with one another in terms of crime, in terms of uh, how they mutually engage one another. So everything about the visit to the country is exploratory. And also to being able to compare and contrast the differences of the American culture and the African culture, or different African regions uh, within the continent. So Ajuma Muhammad, you are a huge figure in mental health of the black male. And this is fascinating what you just said. So how do we compare? What can we do better? I mean, what, did, what were your discoveries? Well, that, that question is what I call a loaded question, and that question <laughs> could take up uh, several segments. Wow. Uh, there's so many things that the African culture get right. Um, mm -hmm. They have an expectation of respect for elders and for adults. Uh, one of the things that I saw is that regardless of what school that a child went to or children go to, they're all in uniform. So yeah. there's this educational expectation. There's a personal expectation that a child will go to school, graduate, and come back and do something wonderful for the family. They are not the, the young people, because that's my specialization. I specialize in working with Black males, adolescents, typically between the ages of 9 and 21 years of age, although I work with young people younger than that and certainly adults older than that. But by the same token, just the mutual respect that they have for one another. Uh, I was saying the children are not bogged down with cell phones. It's not that they can't get cell phones. And with some of the exposure that Americans have with the violent video games and the violent themes and the violent music that we have in this, uh, the oversaturation or the overindulgence that we have in this country of these violent TV shows, these crime-ridden shows, all of those kind of things to me add to the moral decadence and moral decline of this country here. 
And mm. so to me, being born in America, the doggy dog mindset and mentality that people here have here at the expense of their neighbor or fellow man, you don't seem to have that. You seem to have more of a cooperative spirit versus a com competitive spirit like we have here in the West, if that makes sense. Yes. Yes. Uh, when it comes to mental health in that particular part of the world, do you see where they have systems set up for that? That's a great question as well. Uh, believe it or not, in the Asian community as well as African uh, continent and countries, mental health is not in the forefront because a lot of issues they just simply don't have. I'm not saying they don't have mental health issues and challenges. If you're human, if you're breathing, you're going to have a mental health issue and challenge. Mm -hmm. But their mental health issues and challenges don't rise to the same level that we have here in America. Certainly, they have domestic issues. They have marital and relationship kind of issues. And they have just societal issues because uh, many of those countries are economically depressed. And yeah, so anytime you're up under that kind of uh, duress, you're going to have stress and you're going to have challenges. But mm -hmm. their mental health certainly doesn't, their challenges don't rise to the same issues that we have here in America. But they have issues, definitely. Yeah. And we focus on, before you go, our show on longevity. And what age do you work with again? Is it nine to? Uh, typically 21? nine to nine, uh, nine to 21 years of age. But I, I'll, give you a, I'll give you a long story real short. Mm -hmm. About 15 years ago, I received a call from a caseworker and she said, uh, hey, uh, Mr. Muhammad, I have a new client for you. And this client is four years old. That's what she said. So I looked at my telephone, which I have right here, and I said, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. did you say he was 14 years old? And she said, no, 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 he's four years old. Mm -hmm. I said, hold on, wait a minute. He's old? Yeah, he's four years old, and he's in kindergarten or preschool. Yeah. So I said, okay, well, so I followed up, went out to go see the kid slash client, and the kid was a holy terror. He was tearing up the classroom. He was fighting. Oh. He was fighting teachers. He was fighting other students. He was flipping up a flipping desk. He was raising up little girls' uh, dresses. I mean, he was just completely out of control. Why am I sharing this story with you? I'm sharing this story with you because I get calls like that every single day now for four-year-olds oh and five-year-olds. Now, why is that the case? The reason that is the case because a lot of children are growing up in the foster care system. So they are abandoned by their mom or abandoned by the dad. Dad might be incarcerated or deceased. Mom might be incarcerated or deceased. And so children go through the foster care system. And so some kids may go through three foster homes, five foster homes, 10 foster homes. I had a kid that was in 25 different foster homes at the age of 20 years of age. And so when a kid comes into the world the two people yeah. that a kid is looking for love and affection is mom and dad so when mom is yes. not there and dad is not there it develops this this distrust for the larger world and so these kids have trust issues and so they're angry they're upset they're aggressive they're temperamental they're emotionally fragile they struggle with emotional regulation the whole nine yards and so there's a there's a huge problem in America that is looming larger than life itself. And America is going to see the fallout of it because we have these systemic issues within the culture. Does that make sense? 
this is frightening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that a lot of, of children don't expect to live past 18. Mm-hmm. And they're carrying that anger. They are looking for the love and affection, and affection in the wrong place. And then when that gang of um, an urban tribe or suburban, didn't mean to uh, (laughs) distinguish Mm -hmm. geographically, but um, when their tribe comes together and there's, you know, no authority, no parents, no senior figures around. Yeah, it's the case. Um, They don't live long. And this is frightening that they're self-destructive and then destructive to others. Under me, the age of five, I, let, I, I'm pretty much in shock right now listening to you. Let, let me add a little caveat to that. That's interesting that you would say that, that young people don't expect to live to be 17, 18, 19, 21 years of age. Really mm-hmm. what that says to me is that that's an indictment on the larger society, mm-hmm. meaning that parents have dropped the ball because children don't come in the world as thugs or criminals or gangsters or mean-spirited people. They're socialized into a larger society where they begin to take on this disposition and attitude. So it's really an indictment on the adults. It means that the adults have dropped the ball. Mm -hmm. So the concept of the village raising the child or the children somehow has dissipated. And so now we have young people who have this attitude of lawlessness and and a lack of empathy. And so it's, it's, it's really a wake-up call for us as adults that if we want to stem the tide and redirect this thing, that we're going to have to become more involved. It's easy to talk about a problem, but how many of us are actually doing anything about it? And for those that uh, want to understand, what do you do? Because if you're faced with a a little bad A four or five-year-old, because <laughs> that's what they used to call us, you know, this is a bad child. Absolutely. Um, Maybe I was. <laughs> um, but how do you begin? How do you start? How do you like take a little brain like that, a little mind that's racing yes. um, and say, hey, let's do this? Well, I always say start right at home. Mm-hmm. Start right at home. You don't have to go any further. Start right at home. I promise you, I don't know anything about if you have a sister or a brother or a cousin, somebody has a disobedient child or children they need direction they need a father figure they need a mother figure they need to know what love looks like they need to be they need to know what discipline looks like and discipline doesn't have to be a negative kind of thing again it speaks to i always say that the children are out of control because the adults are out of control Mm. children just mimic adults you know children don't have the ability to speak for themselves so it's easy to blame the victim or blame children when in fact we as adults uh, have not been uh, as responsible as we could be and should be. But to answer your question again, Brian, I think it starts at home. And what do I mean by that? God blessed me to write a book. It's called 101 Proven and Effective Strategies for Empowering Black Boys. And when I say black nice. boys, I'm talking about black girls too. He's showing us the cover, everyone. This Beautiful. is the cover. And it's called 101 Proven and Effective Strategies for Empowering Black Boys. And this is a culmination of over 30 years of clinical work. And the book is real simple, less than 100 pages. And it's an audio book. Why, Nico? Because we live in a society where people don't like to read. They have good intentions, but they're not going to pick up a book. Lord help them. (laughs) 
They're not going to pick up you a book. You know us. I know us. That's why we made this an audio book. So if you happen to be mm -hmm. exercising, whatever you might be doing, driving home, you can just download the book and listen to it and just take in all of these wonderful strategies. The book is written in layman's terms. It's not overloaded with psychological terminology that, you know, that would run you away. It's just simple layman's terms. For example, one of the things that I suggest is that start having family dinner once a week. Yes, yes. I know everybody's busy. We live in a world where everybody's getting pulled in a thousand different. How many people sit down and have family dinner mm -hmm. once a week? Don't happen. Children eat in their room. Parents eat whenever they decide to eat. So there. So if you fast forward now, we as a people, we have more money, more resources, but we're still disconnected within the family unit because everybody eats at a different time. Nobody comes together collectively to talk about issues to talk about expectations to talk about what's going on in the world. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're fragmented and we're divided even within the home. There was a time 20, 30 years ago, a child didn't have the option whether or not they want to go to church. You had to go to church. What right. optional? <laughs> yeah. The question wasn't posed, do you feel like going to church or do you feel like going to the mosque? No, you had to go. So our children had a religious, spiritual foundation. All of those things, because we're so accommodating as a society, all of those things have dissipated from our young people. And I would love to talk about your youth because I know at one point you were in the Catholic school system. Absolutely. So I'm curious as to <laughs> the connection between a Catholic upbringing and now. And where I'm at now? Okay. Well, well, my mother was a, a Catholic and I'm not sure what religion my f uh, father uh, was a part of, but I'm a Muslim now. And yes. so uh, and I'm a, I'm a proud Muslim. I run away from it. I give praises to a lot of one God. Mm -hmm. And um, and I don't care what religion a person claims. I always say that the best religion is the one that's practiced and not the one that's preached. And okay. so I could go to any church, any mosque, go anywhere. And I'm, I don't have to go to any one of them because the way we measure people is by what they do and not what they say. And so, but anyway, uh, there were so many things within Catholicism that just simply did not make any sense. And Islam made more sense to me as taught by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. And that okay. was a turning point, like it was in the life of Malcolm X, like it was yeah. in the life of Muhammad Ali, yeah. like it was in the life of Minister Louis Farrakhan. It's just something about that religion that speaks to the pain and also the, the greatness uh, embodied in Black people that is able to reach us in a way that Catholicism just has not been able to do. Well, Catholicism, I guess, is more thought of now that we know more as the conqueror, the, you know, colonizers, the colonizers right? religion. In fact, you know, when Brian first came on, he asked me the question about Gambia. Let me share something else if I could just pivot. Y'all tell me if I'm talking yes. too much. No. I try to just make real quick points and so that we can move the program forward. Love but it. Don't hesitate to jump in. But let me just give you something to think about. Gambia is the home of Kunta Kinte. Mm -hmm. No, Alex Haley was the grandson of Kunta Kinte. Alex mm -hmm. Haley is the one who wrote the book Roots. Yes. Eventually, they made a movie, and it gave us this greater global exposure about, um, you know, where we come from as a people and discovering our roots. So I had an opportunity to visit the home of Kunta Kinte. 
And one of the things that and who who was captured in Gambia, which is in West Africa. And one of the things that I learned is that Kunta Kinte was a very strong, robust young man. Mm. And the white European uh, colonizers, they would beat him into submission, but yeah. it wouldn't it wouldn't break his spirit. So at some point they cut off his foot right. to keep him from running. That what person in in their mind, moral mind, would do something like that? But that's a whole nother story. We won't even go there. But anyway, mm. they cut his foot off, and they had an island, which is approximately three miles away from where Kunta Kinte was captured, and it's called James Island. So this is oh, where they yeah. would take the slaves to James Island, which was uh, largely a slave port that will come to pick up slaves to transfer them to the uh, new world. But the point mm -hmm. I'm trying to make is that island was three miles from the place of capture where Kunta Kente was captured. So even if you were fortunate enough to get off the island, you would have to swim in the Atlantic Ocean three miles back to shore. Mm -hmm. So most people didn't know how to swim back then. And then it was a shark infested waters. And so yes. the sharks would circle the island knowing that on any given day, a black woman, a black man, a black child was going to be thrown off that island. So be, so we became shark bait, right? you know? And that's where the term gator bait comes in, if you know anything about the South, how black children were used to feed alligators and alligators were captured and they would, white Europeans would use their skins and make boots and shoes and things like that. But they would take black babies and just put them in a alligator field pool where the alligators would flip the boats and eat black children. I don't know if you guys knew that. I had not heard that. Wow. Have you heard, have you heard the term gator bait? Yeah. Yeah. I had not heard it. Wow. Google that, Nicole. It'll blow you away. It'll blow your mind. People mm -hmm. use that terminology all the time, particularly in the South. And many of them don't know the origin or the root of it. But mm -hmm. the origin and root of it stems from black babies who were used as bait. As bait. And hence the term gator bait. Sorry to yeah. hear that. Awful. Um, just want to talk about what you were doing with uh, simple things like bicycles for kids. So I was blessed to go to Ghana probably 28 years ago, mm -hmm. uh, taking my wife there for our wedding anniversary. And yes. I met a young man who was at the slave dungeons. I don't know if you're familiar with Elmina Slave Dungeons, which is in West Africa, mm -hmm. Ghana, West Africa. And these truly were dungeons where they held our people captive and raped and just beat them into submission and killed them. Every kind of gruesome thing you can even think of probably doesn't even touch the surface in terms of the brutality that was imposed upon our people. But anyway, I met the young man right there at the slave dungeon. He and I kept in contact over 20 years. So he he had become my point of contact whenever I go to Ghana. I go to mm -hmm. Ghana every year in March. And I spend anywhere from 14 to 21 days. Nice. So I decided to adopt the school where he teaches at. So the young man who I met at Slave Dungeon ultimately became a teacher and a pastor. So he's a very beautiful brother. And mm. uh, I decided to adopt the school. At his school is 2,500 students. At another school is 500 students. So I adopted both of them. So to mm. wrap it all up, I said, you know what? I don't want to just be a tourist. I want to make a difference. And mm -hmm. I want to say this to the listening audience, whoever might hear me. I always say that one man and one woman can make all the difference in the world. 
And one of the things that I always say everywhere I go, that the leader you're looking for is right there inside of you. Don't look for nobody else. Don't look for God to fall out the sky. The leader, whatever it is that you want to achieve or accomplish, the leader you're looking for is right there inside of you. So let me get back to the bicycles. So uh, when I first adopted the school, I saw a great need. Many of the schools in Africa don't have air conditioners. Now, can you imagine if kids in America had to go to school without air conditioning? You think they're out of control They revolt. Yeah. They would absolutely <laughs> revolt, set school yes. on fire, and just become a complete fool. So yeah. I had an opportunity to visit the school. I saw so many different needs. And... Um, so I was blessed to restore. I took money out of my own pocket and I restored the school infirmary. If a kid okay. gets sick, that's where they go. They have very mm -hmm. limited uh, medical supplies. Uh, after that, uh, built a retainer wall for the school. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I made a commitment to buy 100 computers. I've tried to uh, solicit community support. I've gotten some support, but I took money out of my own pocket. Bought 40 computers. So now mm. the students have computers, they also have internet routers, and they're able to connect with the world. So we nice. have them computers, uh, purchased 10 sewing machines. There's a machine called a loom. So we purchased about 10 oh. looms, 10 sewing machines. And recently we've had a, a campaign to buy bicycles. And I made a commitment myself to purchase 100 bikes. I'm asking mm. community support. So far people have giving me donations. One thing that's cool about what we do too, Nicole, is that whatever money is donated, you mm -hmm. get an email acknowledging your donation. Yes. When we was growing up, many of us, we would see the commercials on TV of starving African babies. If you wanted right. to donate, you did. You never knew where the heck your money went. You just True. was operating out of good faith. I hope that they use this money. And, and white folks are notorious for always showing the worst of Africa. Always. And I always say, I don't care what city you're in. If they show the worst part of that city, nobody would want to come to that city. Africa is a very beautiful place. If it was that bad, it wouldn't be so hard to get the white man out of Africa. And Africa is three and a half times the size of the United States anyway. But getting back to my point, we made a commitment to buy 100 bicycles. So far, we purchased 40 bicycles because many of the students live a good distance from uh, their school. And so that bicycle was like a Cadillac to them. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's their world. And these kids are so excited. So we're asking people, anybody who wants to support this initiative, they can. Also, too, like I said, anyone who wants to make a donation, they'll get an email acknowledging the donation. And then they'll also get photos to nice. see where your money went, that it had a oh, direct good. impact. It didn't come to a Juma Muhammad. Or it may have come to me, but it passed through me. And you'll see it. And then you can also reach out to people in Africa and they will tell you, yes, we received 100 bucks. We received 500 bucks. And that's a beautiful thing with today's technology. These are the advancements that we have made. Mm -hmm. So, so far we've done computers, retainer wall, 10 sewing machines, 10 looms. We're working on two vans and uh, computers and internet routers. And what does the retainer wall do? Uh, people drive kind of crazy in Africa. So the retainer wall allows students to be safe when people go past the school and nobody drives off the road, kill a kid, hit a kid, anything like that. So it just kind of protects them from ongoing traffic. That's, that works. More with Ajuma Muhammad after this.
More with therapist Ajuma Muhammad. Each one of us should be thinking about what is our legacy? What do we want our legacy to be? You know, I personally believe that if God has blessed you with good health, you're in your right mind, you have good health, you have more than most people have on the planet. Mm. You know, there are some people that don't even have bathrooms. I've been to China and people's bathrooms or commode or stools are in the middle of the floor. And some places in Africa, you know, they have an odd house or they have to go a good distance to you. So it's just so many things that we've been blessed with in, in this country that other countries don't have. It takes being bigger than yourself and being bigger than the situation and understand that everything we do has a a global, it can potentially have a global impact on the world. Everything we do is systemic, one way or the other, good or bad. And so I just want to be able to leave a positive legacy for the world. We love it. Yeah, I just think sometimes we need to all have a collective body of input where everybody says, okay, we're going to commit to this. I don't know if you have a uh, committee of people, you know, that says, hey, we're going to do the fundraising. We're going to help get the money that we need to keep this going. Right, right. There's a there's an old saying. I think it was uh, by Paul Lawrence Dunbar says that uh, we buy what we want and we beg for what we need. And ah. I say that to say that things that are important to us, you know, where a man or woman spends his money and time shows their commitment. Mm-hmm. And some of the people who, you know, I've appealed to to support me in this initiative, they haven't. And some of the people who I know who don't necessarily have the financial resources have made a donation of $50 and $100. And it goes a long way. You know, every little bit goes a long way. And it's way bigger than me. Uh, I'm just the instrument or the conduit that God is using the vessel to create this awareness and make a difference on the other side of the world. And let me let me uh, uh, say this too, Brian. This is real important. And this kind of encapsulate what we t- what we've been talking about today, and that is mm-hmm. we've started a international pen pal program. Yeah. Now, some of us when we came through school, we may have had a pen pal, or maybe maybe had a big brother, big sister. So we've taken we're just getting it off the ground. We have a hundred students from Ghana, from the high school, and we're nice. going to connect them with a hundred students here where I'm from, St. Louis, Missouri. We had, there's a school called Cardinal Ritter College Prep, which is a yes. black Catholic school, a school that I'm a graduate graduate of. I'm alumni of Cardinal Ritter. Mm-hmm. And we're bringing these students together. And we'll have our first meeting in a couple of weeks. We're going to have an international Zoom meeting. And the goal Beautiful. is to create communication, collaboration, continuity. And at some point, we hope that these students can maybe consider doing international business. And so this thing is way bigger Mm -hmm. than all of us put together. Mm -hmm. We're creating this global consolidation. And we don't know how big it can be or where it can go. But with Mm -hmm. the technology we have now, we're bridging the gap or we're closing the gap, I should say. I think it's a beautiful thing. Yes, it is quite beautiful. So listeners know that I'm from St. Louis. You are from St. Louis. Mm-hmm. You got to shout out Cardinal Ritter. It went viral. A photo went viral recently because uh, Cardinal Ritter has uh, a high percentage of black male teachers and it made a difference. 45 black male teachers to be exact. So that's a beautiful thing 
the thing that you do the most is the thing that you will do the best, whatever it is. If you read a lot, if you play sports a lot, if you engage in negative activity, that will become you. So it's absolutely essential that we see people, positive images and people that look like us because it gives you inspiration and lets you know what's possible. And as a result of those black men in the space, there's a 100% graduation rate this year and a 100% college acceptance rate. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, we're so excited about that. But Cardinal Ritter did it. Cardinal Ritter is one of the newer schools, I believe, um, here in St. Louis. Now, it's been around for a while, but it was one of the newer ones um, out of the Archdiocese of St. Louis. Absolutely. So, and it's being headed by a black woman who's a yes. graduate of Wilberforce University in Ohio. And mm -hmm. her name is Tamiko Armstead. And she is a dynamic and prolific leader that is pushing that institution forward. And yeah. so that institution is represented on so many different levels, primarily academically. And so it's just a powerful institution. And I'm proud to be an alumna of that uh, school. And, and just so we understand, how do we reach the young men that you try to reach on a daily basis when it comes to continuing their education, making education important to them? Because a lot of times you can uh, see where there's a disconnect, especially as they get older. It's like, well, you know, I don't think this education thing's for me. So what do you tell them? Well, I think that's a great question. I think we have to, we have, to have conversations with our young men. Um, many of them are confused. They're conflicted. Uh, they hear so many negative stories about Black men, period. And I think we have to have a uh, an undying love, devotion, uh, and respect for them to be able to have those kind of conversations and also be, be transparent with them about where they are and the value of education and what it has the capacity and ability to do for them. And not just education. See, when I look at education, I also look at the trades. The trades are often overlooked. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody has to fix that car. Somebody has to put a floor down. Right. Somebody has to put a roof on that house. Somebody has to paint your house or the building when it's all said and done. Somebody has to do heating, heating and cooling and all those different things. So I just think we need to be re represented in all those things. But to get back to your question, Brian, we have to have ongoing conversations. It's not a quick, a quick conversation. We, it has to be ongoing. We also have to have positive black men to come into these institutions and schools so that they can see positive black men. It's one thing to tell them to be that you can do this and you can do that, but if they never see it. So mm -hmm. we have a, uh, a prayer line that we do on Friday and we call it the Communiversity. Now, oh, why do we nice. call it the Communiversity? The Communiversity is a prayer line that we have where people all over the world from Africa, the Dominican Republic, Central and South America, we get together and we have like a prayer line on Friday. So each school has to be an incubator. It has to be a community where you bring in positive people that can provide education, information, and insight into professional careers to keep our young people motivated. And when they see that, they start to believe, wow, I can do this. I can do this, you know? One thing that's popped up a lot lately, or maybe it's just been reported more, is suicide. Are you dealing with that at all when you oh, look at our youth and what ages? Oh, absolutely. Well, suicide comes in all in all ages, forms, size, color, shape. 
There was a young girl, probably 12 years old, just committed suicide about three weeks ago. She hung herself as a result of cyberbullying. And uh, that's one of the things now that is very problematic throughout America, but definitely in the Black community. Kids like to play the dozens. We call it joning growing up, but it's the same thing. It's where you publicly humiliate somebody. Well, everybody don't have the social confidence and capacity to be able to just shake that off and keep on going. A lot of kids that are emotionally fragile and very, very sensitive. And then you may touch a nerve. Kids have been traumatized. You may touch a nerve and the kid feel inadequate, low self-esteem, all of that, and may uh, contemplate taking their life. So with the, with the pressures in this society to survive, to make it, to thrive, to make something out of yourself, very difficult, not just for adolescents, but for adults as well. I've had in the past year, probably five people to commit suicide. Oh my uh, gosh. One walked in front of a truck, one walked in front of a car, one hung themselves, one jumped off a bridge, another one shot itself. And this mm. represents a variety of different ages. They were all at different stages in their life. Some I had seen as a client prior to, and then they moved away from uh, therapy for a lot of different reasons. So it's just a combination of life events that impact people that make them feel like they just want to give up. And nowadays, many people don't have the social skills to be able to express themselves or, you know, seek out help. Uh, For a long time, therapy was taboo in the Black community. I'm happy to say now, I've been in private practice for 35 years, the Black community is now embracing mental health like never before Good. people just used to go to their pastor and they're preaching well they're learning now that the pastors and preachers don't necessarily have the skill set all the time to be able to address them and their mental health social psychological issues and let me say when it comes to mental health you can't put a face on crazy and i i, I don't want to use that word mm-hmm. some of the most beautiful clients i have ever seen have been the most psychologically damaged and tormented. So you can't just say, look at this face right here and say, you know, this person is crazy. What does crazy mm-hmm. look like? Some of yes. the most beautiful people in in history have been the most egregious people, dangerous people right. in history. Right. So you can't put a face on that. So, you know, you have to just kind of see people for who they are, not what they look like on the outside. Suicide is is real and it's prevalent in the black community. It's on the rise. It's on the rise in the black community like never before. And I'm wondering, as a therapist, how you heal from that, from hearing? It sounds constant. I I don't know if you ever heal. I don't know if I would use the word heal. But one of the ways I'm able to adjust and adapt to these situations is that, number one, I have to be bigger than the situation and understand that there are a lot of people out there that need help. And, you know, by God's grace, I can be there for them. And so you hate to lose anybody from suicide or just homicide or just deaf peers, senseless murders, crimes and stuff like that. Hate to lose anybody. And by the way, too, doing this kind of work, I go to at least 10 funerals every year of black males, black boys who have killed themselves or killed somebody or gotten killed by somebody for the past 35 years, at least 10 to 15 at least 10 to 15 homicides every year for the past 35 years. So again, you say, how do I heal? I'm gonna use your word. One, I stay prayed up. 
I remain faithful. I know that God is good and that, um, you know, I exercise, I walk, I swim, I, uh, I, and I stay surrounded by uh, positive people. We all need somebody to fill our cups up. You know, you I always say that you are the average of the five people that you're around. If I want to know anything about you, Nicole, if I want to know anything about you, Brian, all I have to do is just look at people who you associate yourself with. And it tells me the whole story because birds of a feather do flock together. So mm-hmm. I have a community. I have a community of people, not just in St. Louis, but around the world who are able to feed my spirit. We just lost one of the greatest pioneers in the field of mental health. And I, I encourage people to go Google his name. His name is Dr. Robert L. Williams. Mm-hmm. He was an emeritus professor at Washington University for 35 years. He wrote the book. Uh, he developed the contest, uh, the concept called uh, the bitch test. And what the bitch test stands for is black intelligence test of cultural homogeneity. And it talks about the cultural differences that are unique to us as a people compared to America. And it's a very, very good book. But if you uh, Google his name, Robert L. Williams, he was one of my uh, mentors that influenced and impacted my life. Sorry for your loss. I think his name just popped up in a meeting I was in and someone was referring to him as if she were going to see him. And somebody else said, no, he, he passed away. He you passed know. away. But he away. left a legacy. He left the powerful legacy. And uh, as my brother in St. Louis would say, Brother Anthony Shaheed, we're all going to get a toe tag. And, mm-hmm. you know, I remember something uh, I read out of one of Dr. King's books. He says, not how long you live your life, but it's what you do with the life that you have. One of my colleagues said something to me, and I never forgot it. She said, each one of us, we act like we got another 20 or 30 years that we're going to be here. And we don't know if we're going to be here for the next 20 seconds. But the key is, what will your legacy be when your number is called? And I think we need to get back to loving on one another. Because when these kids, like you were sharing about earlier, you know, have these issues, it was nothing to go to grandma's house or be around older people and get corrected and almost get fixed in a way. Now we're, we're doing a lot of things that really does not provide the love that a lot of these young people need. Do you find that the case? Absolutely, 100%. I always say that, uh, Brian, love is an action word. It's not just something that is uh, spouted out of your mouth for convenience because mm-hmm. it sounds good in the moment. And you know what's so interesting? You know, right. karma. You know, let's yeah. say you treat somebody really bad as a student, you're a teacher and you treat somebody really bad. At some point, as you go throughout the cycle of life, you end up in a nursing home and the same, per- same person that you treated bad is now in that nursing home taking care of you. Yeah, yeah. And that's how it happens in life. <laughs> that can happen easily in St. Louis. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. what is the key to longevity? Well, uh, I always say that all health begins with mental health your spiritual health, your mental health, and your physical health. And I think all three of those are absolutely paramount and key. Mm -hmm. Most black men don't get the luxury of growing old. Now, what does that mean? Most of us lucky if we get to 35, 40, 45, 50. 55 is like a treasure, 60 is a treasure because of stress. When you think about the conditions that we live under in America, there's daily stress is very, very toxic. 
And so that's why it's absolutely essential that mentally we are, we stay in a good place. Now, there's the clinical side of me coming out. The clinical side of me says, is not what happens to you, but it's how you choose to respond to it. Mm -hmm. And so it's very important that black men understand this, black women understand this, is not what happens to you. Not that what's happening to you is not, doesn't have an impact on you, but it's how you choose to respond and it's so significant. So understanding those differentials and understanding tools to help regulate your emotions and your health, right. those are the keys to longevity. I love it. I'm for it. How do we find you? <laughs> yes. My telephone number is 314-249-1061. Again, that's 314-249-1061. And I can also be reached on Facebook, Ajuma Mohammed on Facebook. And your two titles again, please. Uh, one book is called uh, 101, Proven and Effective Strategies for Empowering Black Boys. And the other one is called Understanding. The Crisis of the Black Male, Handbook on Raising Black Boys to Be Responsible Black Men. Thank you so much for these words of wisdom. Thank you, Ajuma Muhammad. You know, Bryant, he just reminds us in plain speak that in order to get to the age of our elders, we have to consciously raise the children who surround us. Oh, so true. And it also takes more than just the parents to help raise the children and make families strong. Yes. And I think it's also so important to have those real conversations with love. You know, help out, give back, do all those things. And before we go, we want to remind everyone to build that village. So take the time to help the young folks. There's no time like the present. What, what a, a gift. gift.